you could see my face, you would feel sorry for me. People who look at me, they see a mask. Artificial. But the face behind the mask... It's mutilated, hideous. A horrible nightmare. Out of which I can never awake. Here's the thing, I watched a movie which was called The Face Behind the Mask, but when we looked, we're looking for the credits on IMDb, you, it's worth knowing that they don't recognise that title at all, and it's called Behind the Mask. But then right next to that title they have the poster, which says Face Behind the Mask. Right. So, the, you sold this to me as being a Peter Lorre movie. Yes. So you have me from that point. Interestingly, it was made in 1941, which is the same year he made The Maltese Falcon, which is one of my all-time favourite movies, which he very memorably plays Joel Cairo, one of the bad... Well, bad he doesn't begin to cover it. So I had no idea, as in keeping with our policy on these things, I had no idea beyond the fact that Peter Lorre was in this and that obviously it was a movie from the 40s. I had no idea what it was about. So it starts on uh, a ship full of immigrants coming to America. There's the Statue of Liberty, all blah, blah, blah. And Peter Lorre is this guy from Hungary called Janos Zabu. And he's so pleased to be in the, 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 the new world. And he's, he's, uh, he's running, you know, I was worried sick because there's a point where, <laughs> seriously, I was so worried because I, I, there's a point where he thinks that his wallet's been robbed. And I was so worried about because he's like this innocent who's just landed in New York, which is a place full of hustlers and crooks. Before I, we go on, yes. we, we should, you've seen a few films now that I've recommended. Yes. You compare this to Please Stand By. And you can see the kind of film that I like. I hadn't drawn that comparison, but yeah, it's it's, it's exactly the these... same situation of this person. I mean, he does it a lot quicker because you've only had him on screen for about two minutes, but already this worry about the stolen money is just horrible. Yeah, they're He's they're unlikable. all they're all these sort of wounded misfits who, that we're really they're like birds with with a broken wing that we really we're so worried about their fate. It is like that. And characters. in his case again, it's the outsider who wants to be part of he so wants to be american he's arrived yeah. in america he, he loves it um he by the way his money wasn't stolen he just he remembers that he'd hidden it in his shirt because he was so worried about it being stolen uh, but in the course of him thinking, <laughs> but i love how excited he is that the policeman's worked this out and <laughs> actually gives him full credit for detective he, work he, he meets this guy <laughs> called lieutenant jim o'hara and a uh, new york cop detective played by don beddo and that proves to be a very important plot point for a number of reasons <laughs> for for a start, Peter Laurie has been told he's asked where there's a good hotel, and this this typical New York hustler type guy has sent him off in search of one of the most expensive hotels in New York. Right, <laughs> I think it was the Carlton. Uh, but anyway, so the cop Jim O'Hara, Lieutenant Jim O'Hara, sends him to a much cheaper hotel, which is sort of decent, clean, uh, all the rest of it, and is more suitable. Unfortunately, for Peter Laurie. When he's in his room, the hotel burns down around him. Now, up to this point, 
I thought this was going to be a movie about a struggling immigrant in, in America. And I was thinking, oh, how much of this can I take? Because, you know, you know, it's this whole thing about America being the promised land and this guy being the wide-eyed. It's beautifully played by Laurie, but he's just this sort of um, dewy-eyed innocent who, who so buys into the American dream. And I thought it was going to be all about his struggles, to, which it isn't in a perverse kind of way. But what happens is the hotel burns down around him and he gets third-degree burns. And this is why it's called The Face Behind the Mask, is that his face is horribly scarred. So at that point, I'm completely on board. <laughs> and it got me thinking, like, I don't know how long it's spent doing that setup. It's probably about only about 10 minutes, but it felt longer than that. But they do spend that, that lo long time before before it sets out its stalls, the kind of movie which, which it's going to be, which is about a, a deformed, embittered man turning to crime yeah. quite spectacularly. Before that, it just seems to be like this sentimental comedy about this new immigrant arriving in the new world. And what I what that the effect that that had is when he does turn into a deformed criminal, I'm so invested in that character because he's been so carefully built up. And it goes from one extreme to the other. It gets really nasty. It, the oh, end. God, it does. We'll get to that in a minute. Um, but what this this is sort of an object lesson in, in how this should be done, because so often I'm complaining about movies, generally Marvel comic book movies, where they just come straight in on a big heavy action sequence before you know who any of the characters yes. are, and you just don't. You have no investment. It's yeah. the same with modern horror. Modern horror, I loathe because you don't want anyone to live because you don't know who they are. Yeah, there's and, no one to root for anymore in a film. And so I did feel a bit bad about being so impatient with the build-up because the build-up is pays such dividends once you move into the the darker waters of the later part of the movie. But yeah, this is the way that it should always be done. You could do it with a lighter touch than it was done in this, but there's nothing wrong with what they did because you do care about the character because his face is horribly deformed and he's like this guy with all these skills. He's a skilled watchmaker and he goes in to take it, get it to apply for a job as that and he's just turned down because he's got this horrible face. And then he goes to an air... This is an important plot point. He, he's experienced in working in aircraft factories and he's even flown planes and he goes to the aircraft factory and they won't give him the time of day because he's got this horribly scarred face, which we mostly don't see. We, I think we get a tiny flash of it. Yeah, there's, there's actually quite a hefty shot of it in the mirror and then they're very quiet well, When he's first on. unveiled... You get that well, typical sequence of the unbandaging of the head and the nurse watching, which has become something of a oh, staple you, you, in film. you said it was... Uh, I was about to praise it because I thought it was a very effective way of doing it where you don't see his face, you just see the reactions to his face. Well, but that's a cliche, is it? I don't it is a cliche, that. but the more I think about it, the more I this can't think the, of another film that is in. And maybe this is this the source. This might be the ground zero for but that. I, this is such a little-known film that I, I can't believe that's the yes, case. Uh, but that shot you said, you said where he goes and looks in the mirror, you probably thought that was quite a, a lingering shot because you must have freeze-framed it, but it, it's, it's just it's gone like that. It's just a flash. I think it's odd that they show it at that stage. Well, it was my memory is that it was almost a subliminal flash, so if you've seen it in more detail, I think you probably pressed pause, which is something nobody could do in a cinema in 1941. It is shown in more detail because they clearly shot quite a lot that day because this obviously isn't a makeup job that you want to do more than once. Mm -hmm. So in quite a few other shots where he's in profile, he's got the full makeup on, but it looks like they did all that in a, in a single session. Um, but also the posters, <laughs> quite a few of the posters actually have uh, the makeup on the posters anyway, so that's possibly also... Well, you're not talking about once he's wearing the mask, are you? No, with the mask off. With the mask off, 
from my memory of it, and I played, paid quite close attention, you see almost nothing. You just see this one quick flash when he's uh, when he's first takes the bandages off, and, and from that point on, I thought that was it. I mean, it, it, the thing is with this is that I I've watched an awful lot of films with people with a facial disfigurement, mm. and it's one of these things that facial disfigurement equals evil or bad, yeah. and Hollywood's been doing this for years, and it's only recently that it's started to climb out of this and start to look at things a bit more objectively a bit no, less. This is the, the worst possible time to broach the conversation, but I want to talk to you about The Man Who Laughed at some point. Yes, which I, I've got a lovely new copy of it, and a really nice transfer. I can't remember who did it. Was it uh, Eureka? House? Eureka, yeah. I've, well, I've just bought that on, uh, on eBay. You. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I'm covered as I like to own things, so that was the, the right move, wasn't it? Yeah. To buy that, yeah. So, anyway, that was a great silent film about a man with a deformed face. So yeah. that's what we're talking about, is that this, <clears throat> this is a... I'm going to use the word trope just to watch Matt flinch. Well, I'm trying to think... He doesn't like the word trope. I, I don't like the word trope, but I'm trying to think, what year was um, A Woman's Face, Joan Crawford? Oh, is that the similar thing? I think, I'm certain it's the same year. You've got IMDb. Have a quick look. Because <laughs> that's bothering me now. Okay, well, you're going to have to talk while I'm... Yeah, I will. Um, I, I just want to talk about Peter Laurie, who is... I, I, the reason I found this film... Uh, I looked for this in the TV, in Radio Times when I was little because I used to watch a lot of Looney Tunes cartoons, and Bugs Bunny would often do impressions <laughs> That's right. of famous film stars of the time. And I I knew those impressions before yeah. I knew the act. Like this Edward is the G. Same Robinson, thing. yeah. And when he does the Peter Laurie impression, I was fascinated by it. and asked my mum and dad who that was meant to be, and they immediately said Peter Laurie. That's I thought, so well, cool. this can't be what the guy's like, and then sure enough, he's exactly what he's like. It's a really good impression, which I'm, I'm assuming is Mel Blanc doing the impression as well. But um, yeah, this film is peak Peter Laurie. Okay, um, so Woman's Face, 1941, a female blackmailer yes. with a disfiguring facial scar meets a plastic surgeon who offers the possibility of looking like a normal woman. And she turns to crime. And you know, this hadn't occurred to me at all until now. Oh, but, but now, so Peter Laurie is disfigured and he does turn to crime, but he turns to crime only as a desperation measure yes. after he's done everything in his power to try and get a legit job and he's been cruelly yes. rebuffed and very interestingly he only turns to crime he's about to try and commit suicide by jumping in, in the i think it's the east river whatever some body of water in new york and this guy called dink emerges from the shadows it's not quite this straightforward but he meets this guy called dink who uh dinky georgie stone who sort of leads him into a life of crime. But the interesting thing is that Dinky isn't entirely a bad sort. Like, he's not really a scumbag criminal. He, he just, he's kind of amoral. Yeah, Laurie's an odd one, because uh, Janos, or Johnny, Johnny as he calls himself yeah. later in the film, when he becomes more sort of Americanized. Um, the crimes they commit, he always goes out of his way to make sure there's no violence. It's always sneak in, break the safe. You know, it's almost like trying to find victimless crime. Uh, most of the jobs they do are usually banks or big companies, big corporations, never individual people. Yeah. Or, He's so a very moral criminal. He is, yeah. I mean, it's it's a, it's a strange thing to say, but yeah. But in a similar way, all these crimes are kind of off stage. Yes, well, I mean, that's budgetary, without a doubt. But Quite effective, too. It is. I mean, what, what really helps is Peter Laurie's performance, because he starts off really overplaying the innocent, wide-eyed foreigner. And by the time you get to three years, isn't it, of a life of crime where he's trying to save up for this mask. Although he's trying to save up for the plastic he's surgery. He's trying to save up for plastic surgery, but in the meantime, he's... And the, the mask wasn't cheap. The plastic surgery... Yeah. I mean, I think the mask is $400, like which in today's money would be like tens of thousands. Yeah. And the plastic surgery is going to cost much more than that. But there's this thing like the plastic surgeon's on holiday. <laughs> so he has to get... Them. But the mask... <laughs> 
is a good wheeze because it means that Peter Lorre can then, we can now have shots of his face yes. with minimal makeup. Whereas up to this point, it's almost entirely been shot with from behind or from an angle. Yeah. So he's now leading a life of crime. He's, a, he's basically a crime lord. And he's a super criminal. Like he plans these heists. This is where his watchmaking skills somehow mean that he can defeat alarms and break into safes. It's not too much of a stretch because we did get the impression that this guy was sort of a precision um, yeah. engineer type fellow. He's good with his hands. <laughs> <laughs> and he meets this woman whose name is, is Evelyn Keyes as Helen Wood. And this, again, I guess this must be a trope because it occurs in um, Red Dragon, which is this Thomas Harris, it's a Hannibal Lecter, now known as a Hannibal Lecter novel, but it's a great crime novel by Thomas Harris, in which this slightly deformed guy... He's got a cleft palate. <laughs> yeah, well, he's had surgery to, to fix... Yeah, he, yeah. It, it, that's exactly right. And he's had surgery to correct it, so his face is a little bit of a mess. He's very sensitive about it. But he meets this blind woman and he suddenly realizes that he needn't he's not grossly disfigured like peter laurie but he also he does find it completely liberating in the same way that peter laurie does and again this guy is a criminal i'm in fact in red dragon he's a mass murderer serial killer but uh it did seem to i wondered if maybe this is again a, a major trope or maybe thomas harris saw this movie because there's this notion that this blind well, they did it in Mask as well. Do you remember there was a movie, P Peter Bogdanovich movie called the Mask? Chair one? Chair. Yeah. 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 Uh, in which, this, and it's based on a true story about this kid who's born with a major He looks like Eric Stoltz, the poor bastard. <laughs> and he, he, so he ends up, he, he deliberately sets out to date blind girls who don't know how unusual looking he is. So that, this is what happens. But the rom romance with Helen Williams, it really becomes heartbreaking because what happens is, there's in there's trouble brewing in Johnny's criminal gang, right? What he's done is, because he is a very interesting character, Johnny's sort of basically taken over a gang of crooks that used to be run by a safe cracker called Jeff. When Jeff, Jeff eventually gets out of prison, he turns up with a gun and he demands that he, he's all the money of the latest job is handed over to him and that... Basically, Peter Laurie disappears. Well, Peter Laurie, who's this tiny little guy, manages to sort of beat Jeff up. But then, instead of sending him out to be assassinated, he says, oh, look, uh, you can be part of the team. You know, I'll cut you in. I'll even give you a share of this last job. And he's like this really kind of um, humane and, well, he's basically a good man manager. He has a line there, which I've, I've written down, which is, um, none of us can do without friends. <laughs> and uh, But, of course, he is sowing the seeds of his destruction. There's something in this movie about good intentions turning really bad because that cop gave him the address of the hotel yeah. and just wanted to do him a favour but he sent him to his doom effectively yeah. and to his credit the cop at least knows that and he turns up at the hospital when Johnny's still unconscious uh, with his hideously burnt face and he leaves uh, his calling card with a note scribbled in the back saying to get in touch the guy's a fucking menace <laughs> which again is going to be like this terrible stroke yeah. of fate <laughs> but but it, but it, if Johnny hadn't also been sort of charitable and humane to Jeff, the the evil Jeff, who's Jeff Jeffries played by James C.A., none of this would ever have happened. So what happens is that Jeff and the other members of the gang get it in their heads that uh, that Johnny has betrayed them because Johnny has re he's got enough money now that he can retire from a life of crime and he's bought this paradisical house in the country 
where he's taking Helen Williams, the blind, beautiful blind girl, to live happily ever after with him, and a dog. Because like the thing is, when he meets her, she's this poor, broke, blind girl, and she she wishes she has a radio. She likes the apartment where she lives because she can hear the radio that the people next door are playing. So he buys her a radio, and she lets slip that she can't afford a guide dog, and he buys her this dog. So they drive off to this lovely house in the country, the dog and and the the, the girlfriend and every, and we know what's going to happen because the the gang, Jeff Jeffries, has found this card from seven years ago that the cop left with his, his name on it and saying, you know, get in touch with me. And he, on the basis of this, he decides that Johnny is a double-crossing rat who sold them out to the cops. And so they go after him. And it's horrible because he's, he's just moved into this house and the girl and the dog are happily frolicking, the blind girl and the dog. And the Jeff comes and he plants a bomb in their car uh, in the garage outside the house and meanwhile Dinky is desperately trying to warn Johnny what's going to happen so this being the country you know like Hicksville they don't have a our hero doesn't have a telephone in his house this farmer up the road has a telephone Dinky rings the farmer and summons uh, uh, Peter Laurie away and, so, and gives him a warning which he can't do anything about because he's at this farmer's house and he's nowhere near his home. And so he races, tries to race back just in time to hear that. Because what it is, is although the blind girl wouldn't be driving the car, she does turn on the radio and that triggers the bomb and it blows her and the poor dog. <laughs> and I was just it's a horrible so, film, isn't it? It's, I was so it upset about so that. It starts so nicely. I was so upset about that. Um, and But what you, you missed out there is that Dink has done all this, but he's been shot, so he's been dragging his, his wounded body away. His wounded carcass Prior to that, the, yeah. he's interrogated by the gang he's in a really unpleasant sequence where they put his feet in the fire. Yeah, yeah. Um, they, they torture him to, to, because, again, Johnny makes the terrible mistake of tell, telling Dinky where he's moving to. Yeah. And they torture Dinky until he, he coughs it up. So all these good intentions, just it, it becomes, it, it really is hellish. Well, he tells Dinky, doesn't he, so that Dinky can get the money that he's going to leave him. Uh, so again, that is, as you say, just a, it was a good intention gone bad. Nothing goes well. Uh, there is a crazy thing, like, after the bomb goes off, um, Peter Laurie stumbles into the kitchen carrying Evelyn Keys in his arms, and she's slightly, she's got a bit of smoke on her. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. Like, the bomb was right under her when it went <laughs> off. I don't think that would have been the result, but it means she can die in his arms. I, I forgot to give the writing credits on this. Um... They're Paul Jericho, Arthur Levinson, Alan Vincent. But importantly, it's based on, a re like the last black and white movie we saw, which was uh, I'll Be Seeing You, it's based on a radio play. This one by okay. Thomas Edward O'Connell. Not, not anybody I've ever heard of. But as I was watching it, I was thinking, oh, this, this, mo this would work on the radio. I was thinking about all the various ways of doing it. Anyway, so we've got Johnny, who's had his, his love of his life, and the dog just blown apart by the, these bastards in the in the gang and of course as you say his friend dinky has been shot is, is he dead dinky survives because he um gets the money to to, to give uh, to his to dear his, old mother no no dinky doesn't die the, the money gets sent to dink's mother because uh, there's no one else to leave it to so, so johnny arranges it for it to go there I, i'm i'm pretty sure dink dies yeah yeah so uh, it's now a revenge movie <laughs> it's gone through all these changes i thought it was about this innocent lovable bumbling immigrant who's then horribly deformed and becomes a crime lord uh, who's then redeemed by the love of a good blind woman and who's then ruthlessly murdered by the gang. And the day after they moved in. Yeah, it was horrible. <laughs> that, and there's such a nice dog too. And then it's now a revenge movie. And 
as soon as one of the members of the gang says, uh, we've got the flight to Mexico booked, I thought, okay, this is where it's going to pay off. Because our hero knows all about airplanes. Now, the one problem, like in my mind, uh, I thought, okay, what he's going to do is he's going to set a bomb on the plane, right? But I thought the problem with that is the pilot or maybe the co-pilot and other members of the air crew would be on board and they'd be innocent. So how are we going to manage that? But then when the bad guys roll up and I see how small the plane is, I thought, oh, yes, Peter Laurie also has his pilot's license. Yes. <laughs> and there is a reminder about that halfway through where... Uh, Oh, he's gone out flying for the day. Dino Dickey says, are you going flying? He says, oh, not today. <laughs> and the, the, the thing is, I was watching this movie at three in the morning and I had a bit of cognitive dissonance because and I, and I, I'd, for a second when the guy said that, I thought, hang on, Peter Laurie's blind because he just met the blind girl. It'd be pretty, it's a pretty sick joke to ask if he's going flying. Oh, no, he's deformed. He's not blind. It's the girl who's blind. Anyway, Peter Laurie's a pilot. So what happens is these guys all get on this plane to, the, the bad guys in the gang get on this plane to fly to Mexico. And of course, it's Peter Lorre in the pilot's seat. But his, so I thought his vengeance was going to be, because there was this horrible story in the news, if you remember a couple of years ago, about the uh, the German wings plane, about the pilot who just flew into a mount, the side of a mountain. He just committed suicide and he took everybody with him. You're looking like, you, well, you've never <laughs> heard the story. Sure. No, well, you be thankful that you haven't. That, that happened in reality. So I thought that Peter Lorre was just going to fly into the earth or fly into the side of the mountain to kill these guys. But no, it's a much more elaborate and uh, prolonged revenge than that. Yeah, it's a good revenge, I think. Well, talk us through it. Well, he... Firstly, he's pre-warned the police of what he's going and to do. And this is coming full circle because the guy he gets in touch with is... is Chief O'Hara. Yeah. <laughs> I keep calling him Chief O'Hara because I think of Batman. <laughs> yeah, Lieutenant G Jim, Jim O'Hara. Lucky Jim O'Hara. <laughs> <laughs> Jim who, without, you know, without whom this spreads, film would never have happened. Spreads the good luck around. <laughs> Lucky Jim. Oh, it's worth just mentioning very briefly that, that uh, our hero, Johnny, had a beautiful fiancé at home. Yes. And after his horrible accident, he writes her a letter. He doesn't tell her what's happened. He says he's met a pretty girl and he's going to jilt her. <laughs> There's a lovely touch on that where the um, the letter he's writing yes. is in Hungarian and then it fades into English. Exactly. Yeah, I, like I thought that. that was smart. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's an unnecessary detail. But no, no, but it's shows good attention. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, so here the we are on the plane. He's got a limited amount of petrol in the plane, which yes. he's prearranged. Yeah, right. And he lands in the middle of the desert, miles the from the Arizona desert. The yeah. Arizona desert, and they quickly realise that it's him, um, and they realise that they've got no way of flying away without him because none of them's a pilot. Plus, even if they did, he's taken the precaution of exhausting. Yeah, there's the... no petrol anyway. Yeah, exhausting the fuel. So. He knows full well that they're all going to die there. This is a suicide mission for him. He knew that yeah. no one was going to get there on time. Um, they rather irritatingly tie him to the plane. Uh, but isn't that like a, a martyrdom kind of image? Absolutely. Um, but I, I think he could have done without that. <laughs> he's had enough trouble in his life. Yeah, it, it's a little on the uncut. Plus he's wearing a mask that's probably quite hot in the desert. Anyway, they... Um, they're in the middle. They're hundreds of miles from the nearest habitation. Yeah. They, they kill a lot of time arguing between each other and bickering. You see, I thought the movie should end when they landed and, and that the fate was clear. At that point, I thought it was going to end and it doesn't. It doesn't, no. It continues a little longer than that and they eventually will start walking off in... Do you think it should have continued? Um, I think you need the police to arrive and... That's, that's the thing. You don't need this bit, but what you do need is the, that final 
is the coda, which we're about to get to. I think it would be hard to get across what had happened without just showing it anyway. Yeah. Otherwise, it would sound uh, you, you too much like You could have just exposition. ended it when they landed, but there's there's a sting in the tail coming. And to get to that sting in the tail, you do need this interim bit where we see the, the bad guys, they tie them to the plane, they're bickering, they make attempts to try and walk out of the desert and just give up. Continue. <laughs> oh, well, the only bit was they start arguing over the last thermos of water. Yeah. And the, one of... The, one of the while there's an argument going on about something else, one of the bad guys starts to try and drink all the water and they shoot him. And I think they missed a trick there because I thought they, he should have dropped the thermos and the last of it should all have spilled out in a futile fashion onto the sand, but it doesn't, so they missed a trick. I think what they do quite nicely is that Johnny doesn't actually kill anyone. They just end up killing themselves. And it reminded me of The Pardoner's Tale by Chaucer at that point, just to <laughs> add a bit of classes. Do, do you know what... I do know the tale. I mean, yeah. I, I wouldn't have made the connection, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> I thought I thought the plane was like the, the tree in the in the partner's tale that they all have their picnic their fatal picnic under. That's what it, anyway. It strongly reminded me of that. Uh, but what it basically comes down to is that Janos is. Uh, I don't know. Does he frame? Them? I can't remember. Does he frame them or does do the police assume that he was an innocent party? I can't remember what, what they assume. Well, well, how does framing come into it? Because they're all guilty of crimes. They are, but I think the idea is is that you know make sure that they are known to have committed the crimes they've well, committed. He's, he's, when he sent the letter to, to Lucky Jim, <laughs> he, he gives the coordinates where he's going to land the plane. He just says, turn up here and you'll find the members of this gang that's been so vexing to you. Because earlier in the movie we've seen... Oh, because Lucky... you were kind to me once. Yeah, that are. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and also Lucky Jim's been getting it in the air because there's been this crime spree that he's been able to do nothing about. <laughs> Which... What's more expensive, do you think? A plane, your own private plane, or plastic surgery? What was Johnny's motivation here? Because he gets the plane before he even goes for the plastic surgery. No, but he steals the plane. Because the guy... No, the plane, he clearly owns a plane because he says you're not going out flying today. No, you can have flying lessons. You you pay for the the time that you go up. You you don't have to own a plane. You don't have to own a horse to go for a ride. Well, you don't need a big swanky apartment and a posh suit either, but he buys all those before he buys his surgery. Um, no, what happens about the surgery is that he goes to the surgeon and he, he says, you've left it too late. Yeah, but that's after he's spent all the money on the big apartment and everything else. He's got the big suite and all that. Well, but don't forget that the plastic surgeon was on holiday. Well, absolutely, for three years, <laughs> I think. <laughs> oh, but that, there was a plot point that he was... He, the, the, it sounded like somebody had done a bit of research about plastic surgery. He said that you know the muscles are gone and yeah. there's no blood supply there. So getting the grafts to take... You know, I could do it an inch at a time and it'd take like 15 years. But as we know, plastic surgery doesn't work the way it does in films anyway, so... This is one of the, probably one of the few instances of a bit of realism realism, uh, real, realism incursion on the plastic surgery thing. But back to the end of the movie. Sorry, yes. Well, you were just going to say that... So Lucky Jim has the coordinates of the plane and... And? I, well, well I've haven't been, we covered, sorry? Well, no, I, I'm just mindful. I've been yapping and you haven't been allowed to talk much. I thought you might like, okay, I'll do the final bit. Yeah. So the lucky, <laughs> I, I can't work out what bit we haven't covered. Lucky Jim is flying out to the, to the site, the, the coordinates that he's been given, and so the cops land and they find everybody's dead there. And the sting in the tail is that there's a note that's been left for, for Jim by Johnny in which... He's, he sort of says goodbye and he says, here's the $5 you left yes. me. Yes, <laughs> sorry. It's such a great ending because right at the very, I can't remember if it's right at the very beginning of when he's in hospital, the guy gives him some money. 
but he, the money's returned now. And I thought that was, yeah. He says, here's the $5 I owe you. And I thought, well, what a great ending. Yeah, I have actually got that written down there. But I've also written down, Helen has a rough old life. <laughs> oh, and the dog. I just felt so sorry for them. The other thing I've written down, and I, I can't remember the ending of the film, the actual final shot, but it says, I've put, it needs a final shot. So I don't know what I think it needed. I can't remember what it would have ended. I think it ends on the letter, doesn't it? Yeah, well, it certainly ends on the discussion of the letter. Mm. $5 I owed you, which is is great. It's a very sweet film. Well, sweet's a strange word to apply to. This well, it is, because it's a sad tale. Dog-blasting, yeah. blind girl-murdering, vengeance-ridden. And the point about that vengeance is they were wrong. He hadn't betrayed them. Like, no, no exactly. Well, this is all misunderstandings and... Well, it's fate. It's like the blind engine of fate in this. It's It's... You know, it's even very... meeting Helen is just a question of he's come out, he's a bit narked, and he walks into her by mistake and helps her pick up all the beads. And... Yeah, which was a good thing, except not ultimately for Helen. Yeah, what? She gets a radio and a dog, but not long to enjoy them. <laughs> Same goes for Johnny, though. He gets a wife, not long yeah, to enjoy it. It's, uh, it's, it's, so is it a film noir? It's not really, is it? Well, this is why I was struggling to describe it. It's definitely a thriller. Yeah. Um, I think it's a noir. You could count, you could sort of say it's noir, which would give people a flavour of what, a useful way of giving them an instant flavour of what it might be like. I mean, it's a B-movie. It's not... Yes. Yeah, yeah, this... It's, and it's really interesting. And I liked it. And as you can tell by <laughs> how deeply wounded I still am, how, how psychologically traumatised I am, it, it is quite a powerful film. I was very affected by it at the time because Peter Laurie... I, I think this is probably the second Peter Laurie film I saw. I can't remember what the first one was. Oh, I, yeah, what needs to be said is that this all works because we believe Peter Laurie all the yeah. way through. He's like a teddy bear, that man. He's so adorable and likeable. He's got these big eyes. He's a tiny little fella. He's got that little almost babyish voice. He reminds me of Baby Yoda. Yeah, okay. And it has to be <laughs> said that the reason he came to America was on the back of his huge success in Germany in a film called M, in which he's a child murderer. Yes. A serial child killer. He plays. I think what you need to do, he plays a child Well, I'm, I'm just balancing the, the uh, lovely big-eyed teddy bear image. Yeah. But he's an actor. Oh, yeah. yeah but but so but he doesn't always play soft and, and kind. And no, cute. he doesn't. He very rarely plays. And this, yeah. this is... I think this is a fantastic role for him, a brilliant film, and it annoys me that it's not better known. He doesn't often get the chance to have these sort of touching softer roles you know even though he is a crime kingpin yeah deformed crime kingpin but you're right he's not a violent character and he's not a vengeful character he's the opposite of that he's quite saintly two minutes into the film and you bought into him immediately that that character you're rooting for him well and as I, you say I, I, it's I only about to... four minutes in before he finds out he's lost the wallet and you're already <laughs> lost at sea it's true it's true and, and like when he, he he becomes a deformed master criminal you know the trouble is that all too often these days you begin the movie with the deformed master criminal and this essential hum human backstory which gives it all that emotion they they give full weight to that in this creaky somewhat creaky old hollywood script the other thing that this film did for me was create my fascination with one pot cooking <laughs> well i didn't go into that but that's why the the hotel burns down it's because yeah. this guy in the next room to peter laurie's is is Doing some illicit kick cooking on a gas ring. I was fascinated by what he was cooking when I was little, and so yeah, that I, I think it's just meatballs and sauce mm. or something. But it, I, I have no interest ever going in camping, but I love a camping stove. I find them fascinating. The idea of just making a meal with just one pot and whatever you've got there. And obviously, nothing can go wrong. Absolutely, <laughs> genuinely, I've used these things in hotel rooms before, like in a Holiday Inn and stuff. And the danger it your, never escapes me. I always think of this film. Your face looks fine. <laughs> I've made noodles in a hotel kettle.
Yeah, I, I feel that that's the thing that people do. So yeah, yeah. yeah. rinse them first. There are terrible rumours going around about kettles in hotels. Do you <laughs> do you have any other advice to offer people before we sign off on this one? Uh, I want more Peter Laurie. I want more black and white movies. Yeah, well, like Please. I say, we've got. Uh, I meant to bring you now Voyager actually, because. Which would be the antithesis of this, and is a big budget melodrama. And I think uh, I might also bring a woman's face. Well, well, yeah. Not, not with. <laughs> I wouldn't put it on ice. Too. But this, as you say, the same year and a similar kind of story, but again, a big budget uh, take. It fascinates me. It's the same year. It never occurred to me before, so it would be quite interesting to see those two different approaches. Because actually, it's a really good film. I think Crawford's great. Golden it? year for Hollywood, Maltese Falcon. Absolutely. Right, excellent. We'll do that then. Thank you, poor dog. Poor, Poor blind girl. <laughs> <laughs>